Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Let's turn to Romans chapter 7 this week. Um, the greatest mysteries, the most important things in life are really, when you look at them, very simple. The scripture begins with a letter, bet, bereshit. And when you break that down in the Hebrew, it's very simple, but it is the whole message of scripture. Bet, a house. It's ultimately about Yahuwah taking a bride, building a house, bringing forth children and seed to the next generation. Very simple. And when we look at our lives today and all the laws and all the conflicts and all the battles and all the carnality, the most rewarding spiritually thing that you can do in your whole life goes right back to Bereshit. Having a marriage, a faithful marriage, building a house and bringing forth seed to the next generation. Very simple. Because in Bereshit, in the Bet, the building of the house, is contained the mysteries and the revelation of Scripture. I remember many years ago being in a very precipitous or precarious, I should say, situation on top of a mountain where I wasn't sure. I had very, very little doubt that I was going to die. And the first thing that came to my mind in my 20 minutes of reflection before I proceeded and knew that I had to do what, to me, most probably would end in my peril, thankfully it did not, was evaluate and pray. And the first thing that came into my whole being was, what is my relationship like with the Creator, Yahuwah? What is my relationship like? like with my wife. I didn't have children back then. And what is my relationship like with my family and those in the community? That is exactly what I thought when I thought that my very last moments were before me. It was all about what? Relationships, which go back to what? The building of the house. So in Romans chapter 7 is literally the mystery of the gospel. And if we don't know the Torah, Romans 7, 1, then we're not going to have a clue what Paul is talking about. But the revelation and this great mystery, as phenomenal and mysterious as it is, is really very simple. If you understand the Torah, you understand the importance of the bet, the building of a house that the Creator Yahuwah has wanted to do from the very beginning, and how man has destroyed and desecrated that plan through his unfaithfulness, infidelity, and harlotry. But Yahuwah is greater than the plans of man and that ultimately he will do what he needs to do to restore that house and bring forth Zion 
at the end of days. So as we go into Romans 7, yes, it's a mystery. But in reality, to those of us that are schooled in the scripture, we understand that the greatest mysteries that when you're in the faith are really quite simple. And it's for the children. And that's why Yahushua said, do not cast off the children, but bring them nigh. Because the secrets, the mysteries, those things that are the gospel, they really are for the children. Know not, Israelite brothers, for I speak to them that know the Torah, how that the Torah has dominion over a man as long as he lives. And there we go. Before we even get any further, what are we talking about? Are we talking about the Torah? Are we talking about the law? What kind of law? Before we even go any further, we have to just understand what is going on in regards to this descriptive nomos. What law is it? No, not, Israelite brothers, for I speak to them that know the Torah. This is talking about the whole body of the written law. The whole body of the written law. How the the law, now this is talking about specifically the book of the law, how the law was given to man has dominion over a man as long as he lives. So right now, within verse 1, we've got two different descriptors of law. How the whole body of Torah must be known for you to even understand what is about to be communicated. You've got to have a working knowledge of the whole corpus of the written law. But that a specific element of that law only has dominion over a man as long as he shall live. It's not eternal. That, of course, is speaking about the book of the law. You see, the only way us, as the readers of this letter, the recipients of this letter, are going to even going to comprehend what is about to unfold in front of our very eyes is if we have a good working knowledge of what? The whole body of the law. Otherwise, we're going to make up some false dichotomy, like law versus grace, because we don't have a whole working knowledge of the body of the Torah. He's going to now use, in Romans chapter 7, the law of the husband. He's going to now use the law of the husband, which is contained where? It's contained in the corpus of the book of the law specifically. And he's going to use the law of the husband contained within the book of the law to explain the mystery, the mystery of the divided kingdom of Israel. But you're not going to know about the divided kingdom of Israel unless you've spent some time in the Tanakh, the Old Testament. So you could already be lost by verse 1 and you could make up a false dichotomy about law is against grace. And grace is now taken place of law. You see? And this is what we in the 21st century, Zerah, seed, have been inheritors of. A false dichotomy because people haven't studied what Paul said in the beginning. You've got to know the whole working knowledge of the Torah 
to understand what's about to unfold before your very eyes. Because he's going to explain the mystery of the divided kingdom of Israel and the subsequent adulteries of Israel, of the northern and southern kingdom. And then he's going to talk to you and explain to you the simple fact that Yahweh got so sick and tired of the adulteries of the northern kingdom of Israel that he divorced them. He divorced the northern kingdom of Israel. And then he's going to go on further, Paul is, and unravel this great gospel mystery, and he's going to present the solution that Yahushua's death, his burial, and his resurrection is the solution to what? The adulterous, divided, and divorced Israel, and that his resurrection is the reunification of a marriage. It's an undying love story. And why do you think the first thing the disciples said to the resurrected Messiah? Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Master, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because that is ultimately the most important thing, it's the bet from Bereshit. It's the reestablishment of the house that has been ruined. You have no gospel if you don't have a restored house with a man taking a woman, bringing her into the house, into a faithful marriage covenant, and bearing forth Zerah children to ultimately bring forth a city, nation, state called Zion. Zion. Amazing. And we're only in verse 1. Verse 2, for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law. Of course, we're talking about the book of the law because in the book of the law is where you'll find the ruling on marriage. Deuteronomy Chapter 24 is contained within the book of the law. It's that part of the Torah that deals with the rights and duties of the husband. So we can clearly see the division now. What is this nomos identifying in verse 2? The book of the law. Deuteronomy chapter 24. To her husband so long as he lives... So there we have it in verse 2. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law, the book of the law, to her husband so long as he lives. But if the husband is dead, she is loosed from the law, the book of the law ruling of Deuteronomy 24, of her husband. Now, it's interesting because if we look at the Greek in verse 2, and now we'll find it in the Septuagint as well, which is one of my favorite things to do, we're going to find that Paul uses a very strange phrase in verse 2. I mean, the New Testament writers, they talk about women and marriage quite often. But here is the only place in the whole of the New Testament that Paul chooses a totally totally different word. And the funny thing is, when you track that totally different word that is never used anywhere else in the whole of the New Testament, you'll find that it mysteriously appears right within the text of Numbers chapter 5, talking about an adulterous woman who's whored around and made her husband jealous. 
Do you think there's a link? Do you think that he deliberately used this word so that we as students of the scripture would look and find the great mysteries and the inception point of what he's talking about? The Greek word gamos. Gamos means marriage. But we find here who pandros gune, married woman. So gamos is the common word for marriage. Find it in the New Testament many, many times. But here Paul uses a different word, gune hupandros, the only usage found in the whole of the New Testament, and it is used to communicate what? Under a burden, under bondage. Literally, it means a woman under her husband. A woman under her husband, bondage and under a burden. And you can see why New Testament writers wouldn't want to, you know, have women associated this with this word generally. It's not very good for women. Right? Right? Yeah. Thank you. Okay, just making sure I'm not the only one that, you know, is in, into, you know, women's rights and all that and this politically correct person that I am. Not... But look at Numbers chapter 5, verse 20 in the Septuagint. And again, you will find the same word used to describe a wife's unfaithfulness. Hoop andros. Hoop andros. A woman who's gone a whoring. A woman who's gone astray from her husband. Because there's the linkage between verse 2 of what Paul's about to explain is linked. And we'll read it later to the book of Numbers, in the book of the law, chapter 5 and verse 20. Because the law of the husband, as we're delving into this, it unarguably, unarguably deals with a sector, a sector of Torah that Israel, once bound to, is now released from. It deals with a sector of Torah that Israel, once bound to, is now released from. And that's what he's going to go into. It's the book of the laws, condemnation of sinners, is no longer applicable to the redeemed. Do you understand that? This is quite simple. But it's been made so mysteriously complicated because we have had a false dichotomy shoveled at us from the pulpits for over 2,000 years. But really, just like the bet, the house, it's quite simple that a child can understand it. But we have got to unlearn thousands of years of dogma and doctrine. So it's very complicated to us. But it really isn't. It really isn't. You see, the book of the law, listen. The book of the law was designed to control, never to transform. It was designed to control, never to transform. And is Yahweh an Elohim of control or is he an Elohim of transformation? No, Alcoholics Anonymous is about control. And they'll shove 
a whole bunch of false deities at you to try and control you into submission. But Yahweh is about transforming the heart, transforming the man, and transforming the character, because then you have a genuine change. So control will only temporarily, excuse me, temporarily, it's a big word for me today, temporarily, what will it do? Contain a perilous situation. It can contain it. We can put you in prison, control you, but if there isn't a transformation within. The moment you're released, you're going to go back like a dog to its vomit, right? Because there wasn't a transformation. So you cannot serve an Elohim of control. That's what the Egyptians served. The Pharaoh was the great God of control, and he controlled his subjects through what? Tyranny. But Elohim is the Elohim of transformation, and that is through choice, which is true freedom and change. So Deuteronomy 24 is used as a placeholder comparison for a man and woman's previous life of sin and its consequences. You see, the law of the husband within the book of the law is in place because, because of a condition of presumed sin and presumed guilt. The presumed sin and the presumed guilt of the bride because she strayed outside of the house. And now, because of that, the bride will face curses and penalties that are contained only within the book of the law. Verse 3. So then, if while her husband lives, she is married to another man, if the analogy now is Israel is the bride, Yahuwah is the husband. And if Yahuwah is up on the mountain alive communicating with Moshe Rabbeinu, he's alive and he still lives. And then you're down at the foot of the mountain whoring with another god committing adultery. What's the consequence going to be? And this is what's explained in verse 3. So then if while her husband lives, she is married to another Shall she then be called an adulteress? Of course she is. That's the charge of Israel at the, at the bottom of the mountain. They are adulterers. But uh, if her husband is dead, she is free from the law. What law? The imposed law that was placed upon her to control her, put her in prison, if you will, until the time of Reformation. Somebody's going to die. Who's going to die? The only way she's going to be released from that law is if the who dies? The husband dies. Yahuwah is going to have to die in order to free the bride from the imposed law that was there to control her, never transform her. To control her, never transform her. Very simple, but not to me, because I had 2,000 years of doctrine and dogma shoveled from the pulpit. So you have to have fresh mind, fresh ideas for this 
very old message. It's not new. It's just new to you and new to me. If her husband is dead, she is free from the law. She is free from the book of the law ruling. She then can't be an adulteress if her husband dies. And then she would be free to marry another man. Deuteronomy 24. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 5 verse 11. Because this gives us the whole mysterious sacrificial offering right of what happens if a husband gets the spirit of jealousy over him. He's suspicious of his wife. He maybe can't prove anything, but he's suspicious of his wife. So there's this whole intricate ceremony now of what happens in the Torah of The Torah of jealousy. If a man's wife goes aside and commits a trespass against him, Numbers 5.11, and a man lies with her carnally and is hidden from the eyes of her husband and is kept secret and she is defiled and there is no witness against her, nor was she caught, and the Ruach, the spirit of jealousy, comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife. She is defiled. Or if the Ruach, the spirit of jealousy, comes upon him and he is jealous of his wife and she is not defiled. Verse 15. Then shall the man bring his wife to the Kohen, the priest, and she shall bring the offering for her, and he shall bring the offering for her, the tenth part of an epath of barley meal. He shall pour no oil upon it, nor put frankincense on it. For it is an offering of jealousy, an offering of a memorial bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before Yahuwah. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle. The priest shall take some. And he shall put it into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before Yahuwah and uncover the woman's head. And put the offering of memorial in her hands, which is the jealousy offering. And the priest shall have his hand bitter waters that cause a curse. And the priest shall put her under an oath and say to the woman, If no man has lain with you, And if you have not gone aside to uncleanness with another instead of your husband, be free from this bitter waters that cause a curse. But, verse 20, if you have gone aside to another instead of your husband, and if you are in fact defiled, and some man has lain with you beside your husband, then the priest shall charge the woman with an oath of cursing, and the priest shall say to the woman, Yahuwah, make you a curse and an oath among your people. And Yahuwah shall make your thigh rot out, and your belly shall swell. And the water that causes the curse shall go into your innards, into your bowels, to make your belly swell and your thigh rot out. And the woman shall say, Amen, ve, Amen. 
And the priest shall write these curses in a scroll, and he shall blot them out with the bitter water, and he shall cause the woman to drink the bitter waters that become bitter. You can see, this is some serious business. This scared the congregation so much that those that witnessed this, they decided, we're going to become Nazarites. So the very next chapter is the Nazarite vow. I don't want any part of that. I'm going to abstain from all of that nonsense. I'm not getting liquored up. So what happened to the last guy? I'm not going to shave my head. I'm going to grow my beard. And I'm staying out of the blooming vineyards. And that's what would happen. I mean, it's some scary stuff. And you'd have all these women limping along with bellies swollen and their legs rotted. Here she goes again. Remember that girl? She used to be a good looker. I mean, what a mess. No wonder there were so many Nazarites. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 1. I'm building a platform for you. Building a platform for you so that we can understand the mystery of Romans chapter 7. But we're never going to understand the mysteries of Romans chapter 7 if we don't have a working knowledge of the Scripture. Numbers 5 is part of the platform, part of the structure that upholds what we're talking about in Romans chapter 7, as is Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 1. Thus saith Yahuwah, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? whom I have put away, of which my creditors is to whom I have sold you. Behold, for your iniquities have ye sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. Yahweh divorced the northern kingdom of Israel because he was so sick of her harlotry and adultery. She went out from her husband, Yahuwah, and she went into another man. The gods of the nations. And she's limping around with a rotten leg and a swollen belly. Cursed. Cursed. Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 8. And I saw... When for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorcement. Yet her treacherous sister Judah not feared not, but went and played the whore also. In fact, I should scale back seven verses and look at Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 1. They say, if a man put away his wife and she go from him and become another man's and she shall return unto her again, shall not the land be greatly polluted? But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again to me, saith Yahuwah. So if you read Deuteronomy 24, if you're married to Yahuwah the husband, and you decide to go a whoring with other gods? Do you then, once you've gone into another god, do you have the right to come back to your former husband? No, because you're defeated. 
defile the whole land. Yahweh, even though he may sovereignly want to, he is bound by his own rules of conduct. He can't take you back. You're done. You're cast off because you chose to go a whoring with other gods. You can't come back and pollute the creator of the universe. There's a barrier, and that barrier is called sin. We've got a problem here. Yahweh's already disinherited the nations, Genesis 11. So he made a new nation out of Abraham. But now they've gone off and gone a-whoring. There's nobody left. Yahweh is in isolation. But his desire is to restore humanity back to the house in Bereshit. But he can't do that without breaking his own law. Because he cannot, according to Deuteronomy 24, take back a wife who's gone into another man. The Lord, Baal, the gods of the world. Deuteronomy chapter 24, the book of the law, corpus. When a man has taken a wife and married her, And it comes to pass that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. Now, if you look at that word in the Hebrew, it means something hidden that was discovered. He found something that was hidden that he later discovered. And let him then write her a get. That's a certificate of divorce and put it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she has departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. So if there's a legitimate divorce, she may go and be another man's wife. But look what verse 3 says. But if the latter husband hates her and writes her a get, a certificate of divorcement, and puts it in her hand and then sends her out of his house, this woman isn't doing too well. And if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled For it is an abomination before Yahuwah. Meaning, if a man and a woman are married, and then there is a divorce and a certificate of divorcement is given, she may be free to go and marry another man. But if she enters into that other man, and something happens, he dies, or he then gets sick and tired of her and gives her a certificate of divorcement, Can she come back to her former husband after she's been into another man? And the analogy, of course, is the gods of the nations. You've offered sacrifice and gone to whoring with them. Can you come back to the creator, Yahuwah, the first husband? No, you cannot because you defile the land. Yahuwah cannot break his own word. So we have a problem. And this is why the prophets were brought on the scene to give hope and to draw Israel back into a controlled environment until a solution could be found. That's the whole purpose of the prophets. Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezra, all of the prophets was what? To tell Israel, 
come back into the controlled environment until a solution can be found to bring you back into covenant faithfulness with your husband. That's the whole purpose of the prophets. Repent and return to the book of the law where you are going to be at least in a controlled environment. That's the whole purpose. That is the purpose of the prophets. Until, until a solution can be found. And we don't know what the solution is. Because we're only the prophets and we only see through a glass dimly. Even Miriam and Joseph didn't know what the solution was. Because if we had known what the solution was, then the Son of Glory, the whole plan would never have come to fruition because Satan would have what? Prevented it. This is the mystery of the gospel. How does Yahweh solve this greatest of mysteries? Because his prophecies speak of a restored kingdom. To turn this miraculous, miraculous mystery that we are just unraveling into a false dichotomy of law versus grace is a disgrace. It's a disgrace. And to be happy and content with that kind of sermonette for 2,000 years is a disgrace. It truly is. Because this is the whole of the gospel. And if you believe in a false dichotomy of law versus grace, you have no idea what the gospel is. That's why they said in Acts chapter 1 verse 6, Master, when will you get rid of the Torah? But they didn't say that. Master, when can we get drunk on your grace? But they didn't say that either. Master, when will you restore the kingdom to Israel? When will you do that? Yahweh is Israel's bridegroom. The context of the bridegroom, of course, is Exodus chapter 19 through 24, 11. That is any sage, any rabbi, anyone worth their salt cannot deny that the context of the bridegroom is only found in those scriptures, Exodus 19 through 24, 11. It's interesting that that is the only place right there in the Torah that you will find the book of the covenant. I'm not making this stuff up. Sometimes I go home and I spoke to a friend this week. I said, you know, I seem to be speaking an awful lot about the book of the covenant, the book of the law. I mean, am I stuck on something? Because I don't want to get stuck. Because then I'm no different than anyone else. I mean, if all I see is the book of the law, the book of the covenant, book of the, I mean, then I'm stuck just like the people that just see Torah, 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 Torah everywhere, or the people see grace, 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 and Christmas everywhere. I mean, I don't want to be stuck. So I have to scale things back, and I have to look at the text. And then if the text does support, you just have to go with it. So sometimes you have to knock things down so that you can build things up. There's been a lot of knocking down, and therefore, there has to be a lot of putting a foundation in. So those of you that understand, please forgive me with the repetition, but there are so many that don't, that the foundation has to be set 
It has to be set so that we can put up the framework of what truly is the gospel. Because we know that Yahweh is Israel's bridegroom. And we know the context of the bridegroom is only Exodus 19 through Exodus 24, 11. And we know that the infidelity against the bridegroom occurred in Exodus chapter 32. We know that. It culminated, of course, in the divorce of the northern kingdom of Israel, Jeremiah chapter 3. Could an adulteress come back to her first husband after she had gone into the gods of the nation? We know now through Deuteronomy 24, contained within the corpus of the book of the law, that is a definite no-no. The only way, the only way the woman, here the analogy of course is Israel, can be free from the law of adultery and no longer called an adulteress Deuteronomy 24 and Romans 7 is by the death of her husband. Her husband's got to die. But he's the creator. What are we, a bunch of pagans where we kill off the deity? I mean, that's nothing but a bunch of bloody Greco-Roman paganism. What is he, Thor? Yahweh forbid. But look at us. We live in a society where we name the days of our week, the months of our year, after all of those false deities. And our culture is happy and accepted that. That's sickening in itself, really, isn't it? When you think about it, when you think about it, the names that come off of your lips when you just go, hey, I'll meet you for coffee on, right? Wrong. So, yeah, we, we, we've really gone a long way from where we should be. So we can understand right now that it is only by the death of the husband that she's going to be able to be married and united to another. And the only way that he can do that scripturally, without a bunch of pagan mumbo-jumbo nonsense, is by being El Shah. Die. El, Elohim, Shad, breast, die is sufficient. Elohim's breast is sufficient. He will tear out his breast and he will form that into flesh and that flesh will walk amongst mankind. John the Beloved, he knew that Yahushua was the breast of Yahuwah and that's why he was always found on Yahushua's breast. Right? The beloved disciple was always on the bosom reclining upon the El Shaddai because the only way that this can happen is that Yahweh's breast will be nailed to a tree and therefore die and then through resurrection we are now free no longer called adulterers and we are free to be restored and returned back into the marriage covenant for our creator Yahweh. this is amazing That is non-pagan, but that is scriptural purity. Scriptural purity in its finest. El Shaddai, the bridegroom died for his bride. This is the mystery of the gospel. The mystery of the gospel. Look at verse 5. 
For when we were in the flesh, now of course this is describing the pre-salvation state of the believer. For when we were in the flesh, the passions of sins through the law, the imposed book of the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law. This is the book of the law ruling of the husband. Being dead to what we were held by, what you were controlled by, that could never transform but could only control, that we should serve in newness of ruach, because it's going to have to be a transformation, which is spirit, and not in the oldness of the written corpus or letter of the book of the law. Look at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the Torah the whole body of the law a sinful or sin-coursing instrument? Of course not. No. I had not known about sin except by the Torah, except by the whole body of the law had I not known sin. For I had not known lust except the Torah had said, you shall not covet right? The problem isn't the Torah, Don. But the presence of sin within a person which is awakened and it is revealed by the presence of holiness in the commandments of Yahuwah. You start talking about the commandments of Yahuwah to a sinner who is unrepentant and do they want to hang out with you? Do they want to be around you? Because your life makes their death stink. Right? I don't want to be around that person. Right? I know it. Because I was given a Bible at 24 years old. I took that Bible. I threw it down on the floor. And I danced a jig around that Bible, mocking the word of Yahweh, because I was in sin and a whoremonger. And it condemned me so much so. And now I teach the word and uphold this as life before you. How can that be? That, what a... I should have been incinerated right there. And we may laugh, but Yahweh has done that before, has he not? Nadab and Avihu. Wow. That is Rachamim. That is mercy. Mercy. Then I remember just a year later, I'd go back and visit my family in England and they would always tease and mock me because I always had a Bible right against my breast. I was always pulling it out, holding it and reading it. Oh, you can't go anywhere without that, can you? Why, why, why? We'd go and, you know, sightseeing and I'd be always going to a church. I didn't care. I mean, it could be a Catholic church. It could be Church of England. I just needed to sit in a pew and kind of get some kind of feeling of holiness didn't understand anything about paganism back then, of course. Otherwise, I think I'd have been scared silly. But, you know, growing pains, right? 
Verse 8, but sin, by means of the commandment, provoked me all manner of desire. For without the Torah, the whole body of the law, sin was dead. Verse 9, for I was alive without the Torah, the whole body of the written law, once. But when the commandments came, sin revived and I died. And the commandments which were ordained to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin took opportunity by the commandments, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the Torah, the whole body of the law, is holy, and the commandments are holy and just and good. Then what that which is good made into death for me? Let it not be, but sin, that it might appear to be sin, work death in me, that by that which is good, so that sin by the commandment might be become exceedingly sinful. This is just a poetic license. I love this passage because you can't buzz through it. I don't know how many times I have to read that. What? But that's, I mean, that's, I mean, he is making you think. Is he not? You have to reread it and read. Hmm. Oh, it's not the commandment which is responsible for death, but it is sin that's taking advantage of the commandment. Oh, I get it. Ten minutes later, a bunch of pencil notes. That's me. I'm honest with you. Okay, I want to make sure I got this right. Am I thinking properly? Or am I being deceived by sin? (laughs) Hey. I know you guys are holier than thou, but it's the presence of sin that hijacks the commandment of Yahweh, bringing attention to the sin. Yahweh's commandments are to bring life, but sin, it impedes that life, does it not? You see, the solution is not for me to shove more Torah down your throat. I just came out of 10 years of that. I mean, I don't know how much more paleo-Hebrew and... I need a new relationship to Torah. And that takes me back to my first love. Because it's only the Messiah that can give me a new relationship to Torah. I don't need more Torah. I need a new relationship to Torah. Oh, my first love. And there I was trying to get more Torah, more smart, more intellect. But my intellect, my logic, and my reason failed me in my time of darkest need. Ten years, 20 years of study, it failed me. Everything I know in my intellect, everything in my knowledge, all the study, all the paleo, all of the Hebrew cognate words, everything, all of the Torah portions, year in, year out, I've taught the Torah portion over 500 times. I've studied it and it left me bankrupt. And it was 
was faith that got me out of the darkest hour of need. It is Messiah, my first love, that gave me a new relationship to the Torah. And that's what this ministry is. It's not more Torah to the tribes. It's a new relationship to Torah through the Messiah, and he's the only one that can restore the tribes. When will he ask to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, it's not no relationship to Torah. There's the other side. But then it's not a Jewish relationship to Torah either. And there's the other side. Oh, what a minefield to navigate. I should just walk around on stumps. Hey, Stumpy. But really, I sometimes feel that way. Let's progress further into the 14th verse. And we get to the infamous I sinner. And I explained about this in the introduction. But again, we're in the Romans chapter 7, verse 14, so I will touch on it. For we know that the Torah, the whole body, is full of the Ruach, the Spirit. But I, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not know what is going on. For what I purpose to do in obeying the Torah, the whole body... That I do not do, but what I hate in the world, that I wind up doing. The infamous I sinner. And really it's about the Yetzer HaTov, the good inclination, versus the Yetzer HaRa, the evil inclination. And just like I mentioned earlier in the introduction as we went into Romans, that the I sinner is often interpreted as Paul personally struggling with some kind of sin or another, which is not. That is not what it's about. This is about Paul using that ancient form of rhetoric device called a prosopia. A prosopia is a, literally, a literary, excuse me, a literary device used to communicate to an audience by speaking as if you're another person. That's what he's doing. It comes to us from the Greek word prosopon to mimic in the face of or poion to make or to do. So Paul is using it to give us another perspective on the action being described because really this is the hypothetical sinner. The hypothetical sinner is the object of the prosopia here in Romans 7. And it is really about my story, because it's all about me. No, it's about my story and your story. It's about what? Us as sinners, as we struggle on the way to salvation. Has it been so long ago? Oh, I remember being convicted and struggling with things. I wasn't saved, but the Ruach was working on me, and I was, all, I was having problems sinning. I could used to sin with one ton abound, with no regrets. And all of a sudden, I couldn't do those things. It was making... Oh, oh. And then once I got saved... 
Now I start to wrestle through those initial stages of sanctification. So the hypothetical sinner, two things. Number one, it's talking about the hypothetical sinner struggling with sin on the way to salvation. And number two, the born-again believer, recently converted, struggling with the initial stages of sanctification. That's what he's talking about. Paul's not struggling with sin like the hypothetical I sinner is. No, not at all. He's using this literary device beautifully to communicate a point to his audience by speaking as another person. Verse 16. If then I do that which I do not want to do, I consent to the Torah, this is the whole written body of the law, that it is good. We know the whole written body of the law is good. It's Yahuwah's word. For then, verse 17, it is no more I that do sinful deeds, but sin that dwells in my flesh. For I know that in time, that is, in my flesh, dwells no good thing. How many of you can agree with that? Oh, my goodness. For the choice and desire to do the right thing is present within me. But how to perform that which is good? It simply evades me. Verse 19. For the good that I should do, I do not do. But the evil that I desire not, that I wind up doing. Now, if I do what I should not do, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then... I find then a very interesting law. Now, this is talking about a human law, a principle or rule. This isn't talking about the book of the law. This isn't talking about the whole written body of the corpus of the Torah. This is talking about a human law, a principle or rule like gravity that I find in me that when I would do good by the Torah, the whole body of the law, evil... It's still present within me. For I delight in the Torah, the whole body of the law, of Yahuwah after the inward man, but I see another law. This is the law of the members now. The law in my members warring against the law of my mind. Obviously the law of the mind. We've got a lot of different nomos going on here. I didn't even know there was such a word as nomos when I was in the church. Right? How on earth could we ever go through Romans? Romans roading it without even understanding nomos? Nomos. Oh, got to be careful with that accent. Verse 23, but I see another law, the law of my members, in my members warring against the law of my mind, self-explanatory, and bringing me into the captivity of the law of sin. So this is, of course, the law of sin and its subsequent guilt and then condemnation, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Oh, I can't tell you how many times I think I just prayed this yesterday. 
mean, this is our struggle, isn't it? You see, the eye sinner, just like you and I, cries out for deliverance from this wretched body. He's not crying out for deliverance from the wretched Torah. It's embarrassing, isn't it, to think that I once believed that nonsense. What am I, like six? Don't you want to walk into a church and say, what are you, six? No, that's just me. Sorry, you guys are way better than this. See, it's this flesh of mine. Oh, my goodness. The I sinner, verse 25. Thanks be to Yahuwah through Yahushua Messiah, our Savior. So then with the mind, I myself serve the Torah of Yahuwah, but with flesh, the law of sin. With the mind, of course, I serve the law of Yahuwah, the whole body of Torah versus the law of sin. Really, when you look and reflect upon it, what a dreadful dichotomy. Isn't it? What a dreadful dichotomy man is left with, where the human mind mentally knows what to do in relation to the commandments of Yahweh, but because of this stinking, rotting flesh, sin instead is being served. Welcome to mankind. And that's our struggle. But if you're not even aware of the dichotomy and it's not even taught to you from the pulpit, do you wonder why you're shackled in sin and never delivered? You don't even understand the battlefront. You don't even understand the war that is placed on the table before you. It's like Winston Churchill not even looking at the maps to know what was going on. I should do a teaching on him. Turn your world upside down. Let's talk about another paradigm shift, not Winston Churchill, although that would be a great paradigm shift for you. We are dead. We are dead to the book of the law, charge of adultery, and the late of divorce. Not dead to the Torah as a whole written corpus. That's the paradigm shift. We are dead to the book of the law, charge of adultery, and the later divorce, not dead to the Torah as a whole written corpus. So the dichotomy between the Torah in the heart and mind versus the law of sin and death in the flesh. It is not the false dichotomy of law versus grace, which has been propped up but can barely stand to students of the scripture anymore. It can barely stand to students of the scripture anymore. If you don't care and you're just religious, yeah, you can make anything stand. You can even turn Easter eggs and bunnies into something religious. But if you're a student of the scriptures, that false dichotomy is crumbling before our very eyes in this 21st century. It truly is. We're not dead to the entire Torah, but only that aspect of the law, the book of the law specifically, because that dealt with the law of the husband that was later imposed to control them in a controlled contained environment into solution until a solution could come that could bring forth the marriage to the husband from which you committed adultery with. This is amazing. I love Romans 7. So 
as we continue, the death isn't to the whole body of Torah, as we have been taught for so many years, but to the particular ordinance of a man and his wife that is found in the book of the law. It's a prophetic and messianic triumph, is it not? It truly is. This is so important for us to understand because Israel is viewed by Paul as the collective adulterous bride. Yahweh couldn't take her back according to the book of the law unless the husband died and unless she was cleansed and forgiven. This is, this is the mystery of the gospel which has been accomplished by Yahushua because Yahushua died and then he inaugurated the new book of the covenant. This is amazing to me. Yahushua died. Israel is now free from the book of the law. And Yahuwah, in his love, took her back after death and the subsequent resurrection of his own bosom, El Shaddai, fulfilling what? Both the law of the adulterous woman, Numbers chapter 5, and the law of jealousy right there, thus releasing Israel from the book of the law's charge of adultery of the jealous husband and the condemning curses contained therein. That's a bloody mouthful. But my goodness, what a prophetic mouthful in itself. This is a lot to meditate on. But the flesh, the flesh, it seeks loopholes. How to avoid the Torah? How, how on earth can we avoid? Oh, let's, let's erect a false dichotomy. That's how we can avoid the commandments. You see, he's already called the flesh out. It seeks to avoid the Torah through loopholes. Yes, let's contain and construct a false dichotomy of law versus grace. And there we will... Oh, we will satisfy our flesh and our carnal desires. Right? Wrong. Because that leads to more sinning, doesn't it not? More sinning. The flesh and the Torah are a deadly combination. The flesh and the Torah are a deadly combination. Whereas the Torah and Messiah, that's a solution that brings forth life and peace. The whole point is the Torah appeals to the flesh. Oh, it does. Until that flesh is destroyed by Messiah. And once that flesh is destroyed by Messiah, only then, when? Then, the Torah can truly become helpful and a blessing. But you've got to destroy this flesh. And the only way this flesh can be crushed is by the crushing of Messiah that then you take on. Because he's taken on you. When nobody else would take on you, I certainly wouldn't. And I know you wouldn't take on me. I'm surprised my wife did. But then she didn't see very clearly. And I was extremely charming. <laughs> Yahweh's desire was to remove us from our fallen condition. That's what his desire was. Not to remove the Torah from fallen man. Isn't it weird how we just mix it all up? 
We mix it all up because that's the flesh. Sounds good, though, doesn't it? Not really. Not when you're really listening because you have a blood-tipped ear. It's the sin nature that needs to be nailed to the tree. It was never the Torah that needed to be nailed to the tree. It was the sin nature. You see, it's a battle, yes, but we have to understand what that battle is, don't we? And the battle is between the Torah in the heart and mind versus the law of sin and death that reigns in the flesh. That's the battle. The dichotomy is a battle between these two factors, not the false dichotomy of law and grace. And now we come because the battle lines are drawn. They're being drawn more and more as this message gets out across the internet and spreads more and more. The battle lines are becoming clearer with the understanding that there is a change of the law, Hebrews 7.12. Not a change to no law, heaven forbid. That would be lawlessness. But it is a change from what was there to control you to that which is able to transform you. One will keep you in a state of adultery and the other will restore you back to the mountain as the bride and bridegroom come together only through the Torah of Messiah to the priesthood of Messiah by the Torah of Messiah, which is the book of the new covenant of Messiah, ratified by the blood of Messiah, who is our high priest. It's all about Messiah. That's Romans 7. And it's amazing. It's amazing. Questions, comments, I could go on more and more, but I feel that time is, is, does not remain anymore. Matthew, could you just address, um, for everybody that's out there, um, they're very impressed with the teaching to this evening, but um, for those who are, one, by themselves, and two, you know, just hurting, we've all been through, I know some of our prayers even this, tonight were about this, um, could you address that just for a little, uh, and especially in review of this, you know, being the adulterous bride and chapter seven tonight about the law and What do you want me to address specifically? Specifically, you know, for everybody out there watching this evening, 51 countries, you know, 300 people, um, a a little bit of encouragement to them in in light of what chapter 7 says here. Yeah, I think think what is so inspiring to me is Yahuwah's long-suffering and that he has a plan and a purpose for us. And he sees what needs to be done in our lives, and that not to lose hope. But yes, we will struggle against that flesh, but we have got to understand the battle lines. We have to understand the dichotomy. And now that you have that explained to you through the Scriptures, not through me, I'm the messenger. This is the message. But now we understand it, we will have the tools and are better equipped to be victorious together. And if you're alone, as many are, then that's what his Sabbaths and his feasts and festivals are. Look and try and find another. If it only been one, there are two. And where two or more are gathered, then so am I in the very midst of you. So this inspires me. I'm inspiring myself. Because, no, I am. Because I look back 
And I look at the man, the dead man, that threw this down on the ground and did a jig mockingly around it, who now is able through the Spirit to be transformed, to be able to see things that many can't see or are unwilling to see. He will take those that are foolish, and there is no more of foolish thing to do than what I once did, and he will turn those that think they are wise and put them to shame. And that is what is the hope for us all. So when you're condemned by the world for your beliefs, that is a time for you to rejoice because he can work with that. So I, I just pray that people would truly, truly humble themselves and seek Yahweh and allow him to restore because that's what he is. He's the Elohim of restoration. He's not the Elohim of control because I could never be here today if I was controlled. I don't like being manhandled. Our next question is, um, what do you have to say to those who would come to Pesach but also keep Christmas as well? Well, what I'd like to say to those little swines, no, (laughs) that's a tough one. I think, you know, the scripture, we have to make a decision at some point. There is a time of, uh, there is a time of transformation. There is a time of transition. But then there is a time when you squander. I knew that I needed to start I was convicted of the Sabbath in November. There's another story for you, but I was. But it wasn't until the next, the first of the Roman year that year that I made the changes in my life. So, you know, there was five or six weeks there where I knew I was going to be keeping the Sabbath. I made the change, but I was self-employed, and I waited for my, my calendar to play out to make the change. Now, some would say, well, the moment you got convicted, you should have gone in and changed everything and started keeping Sabbath immediately. And some would say that, and maybe they're right. But I know that he worked with me and that I got to where I'm going now. I was convicted of Christmas before I ever came into the knowledge of Torah. I was convicted of Christmas because of the homelessness in this town and because I looked at my table and it was so full and there was my wife and I sitting down to a gluttonous feast and I was like, this is just wrong. It had nothing to do with Torah. It had the fact that the law was written on my heart and we packed it all up in paper plates and foil and we got in the car and we drove downtown and gave it all away. And that was the last time I kept Christmas. And then nine months later, I started to understand the Torah. So he works in mysterious ways. So would I condemn somebody on their way to Passover if they're keeping Christmas? I think the I sinner tells us about that. We're struggling on the way to more revelation, right? And then once we get that revelation, we will be struggling with the initial stages of sanctification. So the I sinner answers that. So I would welcome somebody that keeps both. 
but I would encourage them to persistently pursue and be released from that which would ensnare in the past. Any other questions? Long-winded. Yes, do we I? do. Yeah, it's okay. We do have another question. Uh, this is from Romans 7.4. Um, you also died to the law through Yahushua. This appears to me to imply that it was us who died to break free from that. Could you address that? And that was Romans 7. Four. Romans 7.4. Yes, so you see, my Israelite brothers, you also have become dead to the law. What that's talking about, you are now... Because of the work of Messiah, you are dead to those rulings contained within the book of the law. You're dead to them because you now have been redeemed and returned to your husband. Of course, the analogy is being based upon Deuteronomy 24, and we can just look at that, meaning that if you were being contained and controlled by Deuteronomy 24's ordinance, but then how, miraculously, the husband died, first husband died, and then was resurrected, then you would no longer be what? Under the control of that law, because you would have what? Transcended it. That's the mystery of the gospel. We have transcended the book of the law, which was an earthly, carnal imposition upon a rebellious people and to transcend something means that you go from the carnal realm to the supernatural realm and is Yahweh's heaven is Yahweh's Torah Genesis 1 1 to 24 11 the Torah that Abraham knew and he never knew Moses and he never knew a Levi is that Torah eternal Ezekiel 28 tells us that there was a rebellion in heaven. Yahweh's Torah is eternal, but you have to understand that we're not talking about the book of the law because that's not eternal. That was imposed until impending change, the time of reformation when the Messiah would come. Yes. Questions? That's it. What a blessing Yahweh is in our lives the hope, the glory, and the power of the resurrection, that he would take the law that was written on tablets of stone and write them upon our levim, our hearts, so that we would not be controlled where we would rebel, but we would be transformed so that we would repent. Abba, we thank you. We thank you for teshuvah, repentance. We thank you for restoration, 